The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There are significant challenges here for courts and for legislatures to really understand the technology and then make their decisions, craft laws based on that sophisticated understanding. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 19th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. On May 12th, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit allowed an aggressive new Texas law regulating social media to go into effect. The law, known as HB 20, seeks to restrict large social media platforms from taking down content on the basis of viewpoint, effectively restricting companies from engaging in a great deal of the content moderation that they currently perform. The law also imposes a range of transparency and due process requirements on platforms with respect to their content moderation. A group of technology companies challenging the law have filed an emergency application to the Supreme Court seeking to put HB 20 back on hold while they continue to litigate the law's constitutionality under the First Amendment. To get a handle on the litigation, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Alex Abdo, litigation director at the Knight First Amendment Institute, and Scott Wilkins, senior staff attorney at Knight. The Institute, where Evelyn is a senior research fellow, filed an amicus brief in the Fifth Circuit, taking a middle ground between Texas, which argues that the First Amendment poses no bar to HB 20, and the plaintiffs, who argue that the First Amendment prohibits this regulation and many other types of social media regulation besides. So what does the Texas law actually do? Where does the litigation stand? And what will the impact of the Fifth Circuit's ruling be? And how does the Knight First Amendment Institute interpret, well, the First Amendment? It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 19th. The Platforms versus Texas in the Supreme Court. So if people are aware of this story at all, they've probably heard something like a federal court has allowed a crazy Texas social media law to go into effect. Scott, can you get us started with a potted version of the procedural history so far? When did this law get passed? What is the litigation history and where does it stand today? Sure. Uh, So this law, which uh, people often refer to as HB 20, uh, was passed in Texas, I believe, October, it was certainly last fall. Uh, And then immediately the tech companies uh, filed suit and they they brought a number of claims, including the First Amendment, but that's not the only one. Uh, The district court 
relatively quickly entered a preliminary injunction, I think based on the First Amendment exclusively, uh, that put the law on hold while the case was being appealed. Uh, And it was very quickly appealed to the Fifth Circuit. And when it was appealed to the Fifth Circuit, Texas took, I think, a somewhat unusual step, and they filed an immediate motion to basically stay the district court preliminary injunction. And that motion has been hanging out there for uh, months. The Fifth Circuit didn't take any action on it. Um, The Fifth Circuit, you know, everything was fully briefed on the First Amendment by the tech companies and by Texas uh, before the Fifth Circuit. Uh, There was oral argument just a week ago before the Fifth Circuit. And then I think in a, for what for many of us is a surprise move, two days after the oral argument, while the Fifth Circuit was still considering, and it is still considering the merits of the case, which it will probably rule on in months, on Wednesday of last week, the Fifth Circuit decided uh, to grant Texas's motion to stay the preliminary injunction and to allow the law to go into effect. So the law is now in effect. And and because of that, the companies are literally currently in violation of the law. There has been uh, some very quick action since then, which I can also address, which is that uh, on Friday, so two days after the Fifth Circuit took this action, the tech companies filed what's called an emergency application with Justice Alito, who is the Supreme Court justice that uh, oversees uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, as a matter of of geography. Justice Alito, under the Supreme Court rules, can decide the emergency petition himself. He can put the, the preliminary injunction back in place so the law is no longer in effect and is not in effect while the Fifth Circuit is deciding the merits of the appeal. And ultimately, if the Supreme Court takes the case while the Supreme Court decides it, And then uh, on Saturday, Justice Alito ordered Texas to uh, file a response by tomorrow, by Wednesday of this week uh, at 5 p.m. So we will be getting a response from Texas. And then it's really unclear what the Supreme Court will do if Justice Alito will decide it uh, by himself, of course, what he will do. But then he also has the option of referring it to the entire court. And then it's it's unclear uh, what the entire court would do and and how quickly the court uh, will act here. So let's talk a little bit about the substance of the law and what it purports to do. I think there are are sort of two fairly distinct parts. The first is uh, what the state of Texas has described as anti-censorship provisions. And the second part has to do with transparency requirements. So, Scott, could you just walk us through what the law requires and also importantly, which platforms are bound by those requirements? Sure. Uh, The Texas law applies to the largest social media platforms. Uh, It has a cutoff in terms of the number of users in a certain period of time. And that means that uh, I I think even the tech companies have have said it would capture at least six and maybe more of the tech companies. I, um, I think it would capture more, but certainly it captures Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and a number of other platforms. And and so that, you know, that's one important element of the law, which the tech companies uh, have directly challenged. They they claim that that focus, that definition uh, is unconstitutional and and infects the entire law. But let me turn to uh, the the provisions that that definition kind of runs through. And the the first one, I think the key one that all the, the Texas and the tech companies have focused on is a provision that prohibits discrimination against 
user content based on the viewpoint expressed by the user in that content. And so, you know, we refer to this colloquially as a must-carry provision. And because the definition of viewpoint is not clear, it's also not entirely clear how broad this is, but it seems to be very broad and would require the platforms to continue to carry a, a great deal of the content that they would otherwise remove. So it, it, it takes away from the platforms the ability to decide what should and shouldn't be uh, on the platform. And so that's the, the key provision that takes up the vast majority of the party's focus and briefing. There are then a number of uh, disclosure or uh, transparency requirements uh, that are you know, separate from this must-carry uh, viewpoint discrimination provision, uh, except, as I said, they're all linked by the definition of social media platform, which runs throughout the entire statute. The transparency and disclosure provisions are basically uh, uh, focused on the following issues. Uh, one requires the platforms to adopt a what, this, what the law calls an acceptable use policy, uh, which has a number of elements, and to publish that in a, an obvious, easily accessible place on the platforms. I think many of the platforms have already have this, and they call it community guidelines. The uh, statute uh, then requires or also requires the platforms to make a number of general disclosures, which seem enormously broad about their kind of the, their business practices, their way of doing business, as well as the, the way they moderate content. A, a number of disclosures that are general, that are you know in those areas. The disclosure provisions also include a couple of uh, important requirements. One is that platforms must give notice to users when the platform rem removes a user's content, and it has to give the reason for the removal. And so that notice provision, uh, you know, I think is, is, is quite important in the Texas law. Uh, there is another uh, provision uh, that I want to mention, which is an appeals provision uh, so that uh, once content is removed pursuant to the, the acceptable use policy, the platforms have to provide the users the ability to appeal. And the platform, uh, the statute, I believe, has a 14-day time limit for that appeal to happen. Uh, and, and those are the, the basic provisions of the statute. So the Fifth Circuit's opinion letting the law go into effect is one sentence. It is ordered that the appellant's proposed motion to stay preliminary injunction pending appeal is granted. That's that's it. That's literally the whole opinion. And so I'm curious from both of you, uh, on a scale of one to ten, how surprised were you about this order? And how unusual is it that this that this happened and that there's no reasoning at all? I mean, it's you know, I think it's a, a, a very unusual uh, for this to happen. I think courts of appeals in general allow preliminary injunctions from district courts to remain in effect until the courts of appeals issue a decision on the merits. Uh, I think it's also uh, extraordinarily unusual for a uh, preliminary injunction to be lifted in this way without any explanation with a single sentence. And notably, this court was divided. Two of the judges were in favor of lifting the stay and, and one was not. Uh, but other than that, we have uh, absolutely no information what the motive was. I think, you know, one thing that that may be worth worth saying is here is that this was done 
two days after the oral argument. And I don't quite know what that timing suggests there. I think people can read into it what they will. But this motion to uh, to stay the preliminary injunction, you know, as I say, was pending for months. And so I think the timing there is significant. I think I'd put myself probably at an eight or maybe even a nine. I, you know, I was pretty shocked. The pre- you know, preliminary injunctions are generally meant to keep in place the status quo to allow parties to litigate cases and not incur the burdens of the conduct they've challenged until they've gotten a definitive legal ruling on, you know, the constitutionality of that conduct or the, you know, the lawfulness of that conduct. And this seems like a, a perfect use of a preliminary injunction by the district court to stay the enforcement of an unprecedented imposition on the platform's exercise of editorial judgment while courts rule on whether that law is consistent with the First Amendment. And, you know, I I think the only reasonable explanation is that the court feels very confident that it's going to rule against the platforms. uh, And so for that reason, isn't moved by the burdens that the platforms are going to face in the short term, because I assume the court is going to say that those burdens are constitutionally acceptable, not just in the short term, but in the long term. And so they're, they're not burdens that the platforms need to have a preliminary injunction against. And, you know, I think that's, you listen to the oral argument, you certainly got a, a flavor of that, that at least two of the, of the judges were pretty unconvinced by the platform's arguments. And you know, I suspect that the three of them conferred maybe before the argument, certainly after the argument, and decided that they were going to rule against the platforms. And you know, probably said at the same time, well, we can dispose of the of the the motion to stay the preliminary injunction too, since we've you know already agreed in principle that we're going to draft an opinion ruling against the platforms. I, I also want to add uh, on the on the scale of one to ten, I, I'm I'm also at an eight or maybe even even higher here. I you know I think that the oral argument, you know, as, I, as Alex said, it seemed like the platforms did not make much progress with the judges there, at least two of them. One thing that's interesting here is that the platforms, their briefing and their argument did focus uh, pretty heavily on the burdens that the Texas law puts on them. And actually, they argued that many of these burdens, including some of the disclosure provisions, are just not feasible. And so I think it is quite surprising that despite those arguments, the Fifth Circuit didn't take them seriously and let this law go into effect. Let's talk about the arguments then. First, I, I want to start with with Texas. Uh, so when the laws first passed, Texas Governor Greg Abbott uh, made some, I think it's fair to say, rhetorical flourishes about how the law was necessary to protect First Amendment rights in the Lone Star State uh, arguing that, and I quote, there was a dangerous movement by social media companies to silence conservative viewpoints and ideas. So let's set aside for a minute the fact that those claims of anti-conservative bias have consistently failed to be backed up by by evidence. What is the legal argument that Texas is making besides this kind of uh, posturing? Alex, let me kick that one to you. Well, the main argument that they're making, the one that they, you know, that would most broadly justify their law, if it were true or accepted, is that the platforms are common carriers and so can be regulated as common carriers. And, you know, if you read the briefing, the broadest conclusion they draw from that argument is that the First Amendment is entirely irrelevant to the question of the state's authority to pass this law. 
And, you know, that's a dangerous argument for a lot of reasons. For one is, you know, it just seems to be not true. The platforms are not common carriers in the way that courts have generally understood common carriers. They don't, you know, agree to prioritize all content equally on their services. In fact, the main value that they offer to consumers, to users, is to prioritize content. You know, most people go to Facebook because uh, when they go there, they're not going to be presented with a disorganized mess of spam and pornography and you know other content that most users don't want to actually see in their in their news feeds. They go there because Facebook, you know, sorts sorts the news feeds. And we can have you know debates about whether the ways in which the platforms sort their feeds are ultimately serving the public interest and serving a healthy public discourse. But in any event, they're clearly, you know, they clearly reflect the platform's own decisions as to the communities that they want to create and foster. And Texas's, you know, proposed legal rule would deny platforms that right entirely and allow state legislatures instead to dictate what the organizing principles are for the uh, messages that are posted by users on social media platforms. And so it's it's an extraordinarily dangerous uh, argument for that reason. And one that it's hard to imagine that the Supreme Court would uphold. I say that, you know, with the important caveat that it it seems that, you know, at least two of three Fifth Circuit judges are on the verge of holding just that. And so, you know, I I don't want to make the mistake of trying to predict what the Supreme Court would do here, but I'd be, you know, I'd be shocked even more than the eight I was at the stay of the preliminary injunction, and maybe up it to a 10 if the Supreme Court ultimately ruled in Texas's favor on on the key provision, on the must-carry provision. Let me, let me add there that another, uh, I think uh, maybe the second main argument that is made here by Texas is that what the platforms are doing is conduct, not speech. And they rely on a couple of Supreme Court cases uh, or, or you know, one, one main one, the, 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 the fair case about law school recruiting and, and military recruiters to argue that what the platforms are doing is conduct not speech. And for the reasons that Alex gave, uh, that that is a, a troubling and I think very unconvincing argument uh, when you consider the content moderation decisions and judgments the platforms are making about what they want to publish and what they don't want to publish. I think it's very hard to construe that uh, as conduct rather than speech. Right. So if we take the state's arguments that there's basically no speech rights at stake, at all here. Uh, At the complete opposite end of the spectrum are the arguments of the platforms uh, who are being represented as an industry group called NetChoice, which is why people may see that on uh, reporting about this. Before we get to, you know, why maybe we don't need to be at either extreme, let's talk about how the platforms are are taking it. And obviously um, their their argument is, is much more on the other end. Let's start with that must-carry provision. What is their argument that this is, in fact, unconstitutional and, and you know, infringes the, the First Amendment? The, with respect to the must-carry provision, the key point that the platforms are relying on here uh, is that under Supreme Court precedent, beginning with the uh, important Tornillo case involving the Miami Herald newspaper, that uh, many different companies that are engaging in editorial judgment have have the right under the First Amendment, the clear right to decide what to publish and what not to publish. And they can make those judgments. And the viewpoint uh, neutrality or viewpoint non-discrimination provision, the must-carry provision, the platforms argue, directly conflicts 
with that First Amendment right, that it requires them to publish various kinds of content that they disagree with. Uh, and so it actually directly uh, contradicts and prevents, uh, intrudes on their own uh, speech. Let's move to the transparency and due process requirements, because I think these are really interesting. And, you know, I have a lot more sympathy for these uh, in, in many cases. And I know that the Knight Institute has been thinking about this a lot, too. You know, this is the kind of thing that civil society groups have been arguing for for ages as the kind of regulation that they would support, you know, requiring platforms to tell us more about what they're doing and give users more rights to appeal and and due process when they take actions against them. And, you know, this is even the kind of regulation that platforms have said that they would support, you know, op-eds by Mark Zuckerberg in the Washington Post and Susan Wojcicki in the Wall Street Journal uh, saying, yes, yes, we agree, it's time for regulation and transparency and due process are the way to go. But that's, of course, uh, unsurprisingly, maybe not the position that they've taken before the court when it comes to this regulation. So what's going on here? How how can they argue that this is also unconstitutional? And, and what do you make of those arguments? Alex, do you want to have a stab at that one? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the platforms and some of their amici, some of the organizations that have filed briefs in support of their arguments, argue that the transparency provisions of HB 20 should also be held to be unconstitutional because they also implicate editorial judgment. And the argument they make is essentially that the protection that the Supreme Court has afforded to editorial judgment protects not just the right to decide what to publish and what and what not to publish, but that it creates a kind of protective barrier around the editorial process and prevents legislatures from piercing it in almost any way, including through, you know, through transparency requirements, with the argument being that if you require the platforms to be transparent about some of their internal processes that might chill them from engaging in some of the editorial decision-making they need to do. And at the broadest, you know, I, don't, I forget whether the companies actually make the argument this broadly, but certainly some of their amici do, that regulations that even just implicate editorial judgment are per se unconstitutional and not even subject to the ordinary standards of review that the, the Supreme Court has applied to, you know, laws that directly burden uh, specific viewpoints, for example, and those laws are, of course, subjected to strict scrutiny. And, you know, our view is that that's the wrong way to think about these transparency requirements in general. And I, I want to make clear that, you know, we're not here, um, or I'm not here anyway, to defend Texas's transparency requirements in particular. To my mind, the more interesting question, the more important one going forward is not whether these laws in particular are constitutional, but what the right legal framework is to apply to transparency requirements. And my own view is that there are you know, some laws that, some transparency laws that might not implicate the First Amendment at all, or at most uh, only incidentally. And I'm thinking, for example, of the legislative safe harbor that the Knight Institute has proposed, which would, you know, for, for those who haven't you know, read the safe harbor, it's a proposal to immunize research and journalism from legal liability you know, when that research and journalism violates platform terms of service, so long as it uh, respects user privacy. And to my mind, that kind of a law at most incidentally burdens free expression. And so, you know, would be subjected only to, you know, minimal review. But going beyond that, and, you know, here we're getting closer to what Texas's law tries to do and what some of the other proposals that have been made on the Hill try to do, uh, which are laws that compel companies 
to disclose certain information. And again, the platforms and some of the uh, their amici argue that those laws should be uh, held to be per se unconstitutional. And uh, in our brief, we argue that as a general matter, those types of laws should be subject only to review under the Supreme Court's decision in Zouderer. And Zouderer was a case that dealt with advertising by lawyers, but it stands for the principle that laws that require the disclosure of only purely factual and uncontroversial information um, about commercial services are subject to a much lower level of review. And the primary question that courts ask of those kinds of laws is whether they unduly burden speech. And if they don't, in other words, if the state has a good reason for enacting them, and if the burdens that they impose on speech are not undue or disproportionate, then those kinds of laws are, are constitutional. And you see all sorts of laws like that. Any kind of nutrition labeling law, for example, if it were challenged on First Amendment grounds, would likely be upheld under Zouderer. Uh, and our view is that at least some of the provisions in Texas's law and some of the other proposals made for transparency that have been dis, you know, made publicly should be subject to Zouderer uh, review and, and not uh, held to be per se unconstitutional or subjected to you know, strict scrutiny or other forms of heightened First Amendment review. I want to go back to this question about, you know, to what extent the First Amendment does or doesn't prohibit legislatures from requiring this level of transparency. But before we do that, I, I also want to dig into the the first portion of the the Texas law, the must carry provisions and, and what the outcomes of that might be. So in its application to the Supreme Court, NetChoice is arguing that, and I quote, HB 20 would compel platforms to disseminate all sorts of objectionable viewpoints, such as Russia's propaganda claiming that its invasion of Ukraine is justified, ISIS propaganda claiming that extremism is warranted, neo-Nazi or KKK screeds, um, and encouraging children to engage in riskier and un- unhealthy behavior like eating disorders. Is that right, do you think? Is that an accurate description of, of what the law is? And I think that might help explain, you know, why it is that this law raises all kinds of questions, the must-carry provisions. I, I would say yes, but it depends. I, I say it depends because we don't actually have any uh, authoritative interpretation of the law, and the law itself is actually pretty vague on this point. It prohibits platforms from censoring user expression based on viewpoint. Uh, but that wouldn't, at least on its face, seem to you know, prevent the platforms from enforcing viewpoint neutral rules. So for example, if the platforms had rules uh, that protected minors on the basis of their status as minors and not on the basis of the content of speech or on the viewpoint of speech, then you know, presumably they could enforce those rules. If they had rules that prohibited depictions of violence irrespective of the viewpoint that the violence uh, reflected, then presumably they could enforce those rules. But again, there's a lot of uncertainty here just because the law is unclear and we don't have any interpretations of it from state courts because it was just enacted and hasn't yet been enforced. To add to that, I, I, uh, I do think uh, it's correct that the viewpoint uh, non-discrimination provision or must-carry provision would require the platforms in many cases to publish content uh, that is very troubling. And that's in part because I think a lot of uh, content, if you just take you know, hate speech, for example, expresses a viewpoint, at least as, as, as the word viewpoint is commonly understood. And so 
I think, you know, uh, it would be difficult to interpret around that. And so many of the types of content that the platforms point to, uh, I think they would have to publish. But as Alex has said, there are a number of ways in which neutral rules uh, that identify, you know, a class of, of uh, speakers or a class of conduct that may uh, not fall afoul of the law. But again, the law is quite vague and, and, and obviously untested. Yeah. So I want to make this a little more concrete. You know, we're sitting here in the aftermath of the tragedy in Buffalo, and there's been a lot of discussion, I think, in the past few days about whether the Texas law would require platforms to carry the live stream of the, those crimes. And, you know, it's it's been spreading on a bunch of platforms since then, and they have been, you know, making their best efforts, although often failing, to scrub it. You know, many people have been arguing that this this law is, you know, especially bad because it would require platforms to carry this kind of speech. But it's not obvious to me that that's right, you know, to take down a, a category of content that we might call like, you know, depending on how broadly you want to define it, but like graphic first person shooting videos or some sort of graphic violence, that's definitely a content-based distinction, but I don't necessarily think it needs to be a viewpoint-based distinction, you know, if you're not taking down purely white nationalist versions of this violence. The counter argument to that might be something along the lines of, sure, but as we were just discussing, as both of you were just saying, there's a lot of uncertainty here. We don't really know what the law is. The law has these vague words, viewpoint discrimination, but doesn't make any real effort to define them. You know, at some point, it's like Crimea River for the platforms, the the biggest platforms that have to litigate this to find out. But I also don't want to be, you know, uh, digging in to support a somewhat ridiculous law. But, you know, to me, it it seems like we don't need to yell that the sky is falling at every point to argue that this law is is terrible for a number of reasons. Um, But I'm curious for your reactions to that, you know, both the substantive question of whether this is a kind of thing that platforms would be required to carry and how much of a problem it is that there is uncertainty around around how this would apply. I, I think you're right, Evelyn, that the platforms could have viewpoint neutral rules under which they would take down um, the videos of the recent shooting in Buffalo. The question to my mind is whether they have those rules now and whether those are the rules they relied on in taking down the video. And let me, and let me just give you like a, you know, an example. Suppose the rule were something like, uh, we don't allow you know, first-person perspective videos depicting violence, or maybe first-person perspective videos depicting uh, gun violence in particular. Well, you can imagine platforms might reasonably make exceptions to that rule when, for example, uh, the video is a body cam footage from a police officer engaged in police brutality that a victim's advocacy organization wants to use to show that, look, this violence really does exist. It happens. And you can imagine, you know, a reasonable rule would make an exception for that. I think it'd be hard to defend that exception as uh, viewpoint neutral. I think that exception would probably be a viewpoint-based exception to the rule, which may very well call into question whether the rule itself is viewpoint neutral if it's only enforced in circumstances where the platforms think there's no you know, worthy viewpoint expressed by, you know, expressed by the video or by the use of the video uh, on their platforms. So I think, I think you're right. I think you're, you're technically right. I just don't, I just don't know whether the platforms in fact removed the video on the basis of a viewpoint neutral rule. I think they could have, I just don't know. 
I would just add that you know the, the platforms could take the position, which I think you know Alex um, indicated that this video in particular does not express a viewpoint. I confess that I have not watched the video. I haven't wanted to watch it, but that is an argument the platforms could make, and that would obviously you know take it out of the must carry uh, provision of the statute. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So I want to go back to the transparency portion now that we've kind of established how the the must carry portion works. And we've we've talked about how, you know, though the must carry part of the the law is obviously uh raises a, a lot of questions and a lot of problems, but Alex you kind of sketched out this argument that, you know, maybe we shouldn't go too far or that the net choice that the plaintiff is is perhaps going too far in making first amendment arguments that could preclude many other kinds of potential regulation including transparency regulation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what where are you worried this argument could go and why is it that Knight is kind of trying to triangulate a third position here? Yeah, ultimately I'm worried that overly broad protection you know against transparency provisions might actually undermine first amendment interests. Often, you know, transparency provisions serve, you know, the public and in in particular, they serve the free speech interest by informing the public about, you know, services being offered uh, by companies. They serve an informational function, which is crucially important, you know, to healthy public discourse. And, you know, so my instinct is that there is room for transparency provisions to do important First Amendment affirming work when it comes to the social media platforms. Now, that's not to say that any uh, transparency provision directed at the platforms should be viewed as constitutional. It's to say the inverse, which is that not every transparency provision directed at the platform should be viewed as unconstitutional, which I think really is the upshot of the arguments that the platforms are making. And that's the reason why you know we decided to get involved, because we thought that this is a, a classic case where you have First Amendment interest, strong First Amendment interest on both sides. And what you need in that circumstance is a framework that accommodates both sets of interests and doesn't just reflexively prioritize one over the other. Uh, and that's you know what we 
uh, think the Zouder framework does for transparency provisions. So that strikes me as very reasonable. The idea that, yes, we need to protect the First Amendment rights of the platforms, but that doesn't mean that absolutely no regulation is possible in any circumstance. You know, I'm very sympathetic to that view. Maybe that's why I'm doing a fellowship with you this year. But many people have not been sympathetic to that view. You know, the Knight Institute has come in for a bunch of criticism for taking that position, including some people saying, hold on, you're the Knight First Amendment Institute. How can you be arguing for a more limited version of platforms First Amendment rights? And many of the amici were also not really uh, sympathetic to this view. I think Knight uh, was sort of a little bit out in the cold by itself. What's going on here? Why you know, would this position, which rejects an all or nothing approach and does sound pretty reasonable uh, to me that, you know, we don't want to completely have the government regulating all speech. At the same time, platforms are, you know, very important and things like transparency and due process seem like generally good things. And we wouldn't want to disable governments from being able to regulate platforms at all merely because they have, they make decisions about speech. Why do you think that's such a sort of unusual argument? It's a great question. I I think that part of it is that there's a misperception in some corners of the First Amendment community, you know, that First Amendment litigation is kind of zero sum. You're either pushing for more First Amendment rights or you're pushing to restrict First Amendment rights. And really what is going on is there's a fight over what the First Amendment means, particularly in context where you have First Amendment values reflected on both sides of the V, on both sides of the conflict. And when you have that situation, the fight is not over more or fewer First Amendment rights or more or less First Amendment protection. It is over, you know, what values you think the First Amendment ought to serve in society. And, you know, to my mind, those conflicts make for the most interesting and also the most challenging questions. And, you know, we've set ourselves up, I think, for uh, this kind of criticism by being committed to thinking through, you know, almost exclusively these sorts of questions, the ones where you have First Amendment values on both sides of the V. But what it means is that, you know, one person's vision of the First Amendment often comes at, at the cost of First Amendment values on the other side. And, you know, the clearest example of this that I think I can give, you know, comes from the Supreme Court. You know, for the last 30 or 40 years, and Evelyn, you will know this history better than I do, but for the last 30 or 40 years, the Supreme Court has more or less reflexively you know, ruled in favor of the rights of people to speak when those rights come into conflict with the rights of people to listen or the rights of society more generally to a public discourse that serves self-government. And my instinct is that analytically, that seems off, that it can't be, it shouldn't be the case that in every instance where one person's First Amendment right comes into conflict with another person's First Amendment right, that the result is uh, that the person who runs into court as the speaker prevails. And this, to my mind, is another example of that, of, you know, of that tension where the person who has run into court is arguing that their right trumps the other free speech values that are that are at play. And I don't actually think that's what doctrine requires in this context. I think doctrine actually requires a balance of the interest. And that, and that is the balance that I think is reflected in the Zouderer framework. And you know, you're right that we've gotten you know, criticized for taking that position, but I think it's the right one. And so I'm, I'm fine you know, 
trying to defend against a criticism, but only because I think the position is the right one. Scott, what do you think? I, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, it, it is uh, quite short-sighted, and I, I think it's a very narrow view of the First Amendment in a way to uh, believe that it is only about uh, speech and that it is not about information that informs the public, that uh, enables public discourse. And that is what transparency allows. And, and as we've argued in a number of contexts, transparency is essential to inform the public. And so much of what these platforms are doing uh, is, is sort of a, in a black box. We just don't know. The algorithms themselves are unknown. And I think in many cases, the companies themselves don't know what the algorithms end up doing when they are inserted into the public uh, or into their platforms. And so there are many ways in which transparency, particularly in this case, with respect to the social media platforms, can serve the values of the First Amendment, uh, can serve uh, you know, democratic self-governance, open discourse. And that's why uh, just taking the view that the social media platform's First Amendment rights trump any regulation, even transparency regulation, is uh, very short-sighted, is, a, is a, a somewhat blinded view of the First Amendment. So I want to push you a little bit on this. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll be the bad cop here to, to Evelyn's good cop. I think it, it's interesting. It's an interesting time to be thinking about you know what the first amendment is and should do because as as you say alex that you know we're we're sort of in a period where the court has taken uh increasingly whatever you want to call it formalistic rigid uh view of the first amendment over over the last few decades and what you're offering here i think is a sort of much more flexible intellectually interesting i would argue approach on the other hand i i also think that we have to think about the context here, you know, that we're in a situation where the law is perhaps in flux. Um, You know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said no, an appellate court would never (laughs) indicate that it would uphold a a law along these lines under the First Amendment. But the, the Fifth Circuit certainly seems to be heading in this direction. And we're also in a situation where, you know, I think it is reasonable to ask how well both legislators and, for that matter, judges understand the sort of technical issues involved here, how, you know, political considerations, we've been talking about this this idea of anti-conservative bias that motivated the Texas law, how that plays into these discussions, both uh, within court and within legislators. So my question sort of is, you know, is there any concern on your part that, Arguing for, you know, changing the the doctrine, moving in a different direction could potentially lead to a, a bad outcome down the line insofar as some of the people who are part of this conversation may not be operating in 100% good faith. Um, or, or to put it another way, you know, I could I can make the argument that you know there's a real attraction to taking the kind of hard line the First Amendment prohibits any kind of regulation, including transparency requirements, because it provides kind of a bulwark against uh, a law like the Texas law, for example. Am I being overly, you know, cautious, cynical, pessimistic here? I'm curious for your thoughts. Well, let me let me start by just like quibbling with a small part of the question, which is please the, the idea that we're 
pushing for a change in the law. I don't think in this case we're pushing for a change in the law. I think we were, you know, we're arguing that the framework that the Supreme Court has already set out to analyze disclosure requirements should apply to these disclosure requirements, or at least to some of them, you know, a small subset of them that we focus on in our brief. But more generally, I, I don't I don't disagree that we should tread carefully here. Anytime you're in a circumstance, you know, anytime you're dealing with legislation of speech, you should demand that legislatures explain, you know, why it is they're regulating the speech, what interests are being served, and you should scrutinize those explanations and be very sensitive to the burdens imposed by the law. But my own view is that the Zouder framework, the one that we push for, requires that, allows for that. And there are very good reasons to think that Texas's law itself may ref- overall reflect an effort to suppress viewpoint. And the platforms have strongly argued that uh, the legislative history surrounding the enactment of HB 20, you know, suggests it was an effort to punish big tech for uh, their liberal views. And if the courts agree with that, then the law as a whole should probably fail. You know, we didn't end up taking a position on that question because the legislative record is not entirely clear. And, you know, so we we didn't take a position one way or the other on that question. But if a court agrees with with net choice that that's really what's going on here, then, of course, it should invalidate the law. And more generally, you know, courts should stand as a bulwark against efforts to distort public discourse, especially when it, you know, on the basis of viewpoint. But I think they can do that while also being sensitive to First Amendment values on the other side. And it's important to recognize that there is a cost to the formalism. It is not, you know, it is not as though the expansion of uh, First Amendment protection that the companies are pushing for comes cost-free. It comes at a cost. It would prevent regulators from enforcing almost any kind of disclosure requirement as applied to social media companies. And that's a First Amendment cost. And recognizing it as a First Amendment cost, I think, undermines the notion that there's only a First Amendment benefit to be had from asking courts to be complete bulwarks against regulation, because that's not what they're doing. They're they're actually taking a side and being a bulwark against regulation because they're being, uh, you know, if, if you ask them to play that role, then they're also preventing the enactment of legislation that serves First Amendment values. So that's how I think about it. But again, it's, it's not, I'm not calling for a free-for-all. We're not calling for a free-for-all. Uh, we still think courts have an important role to play. Uh, they just shouldn't be insensitive to First Amendment values on both sides of the conflict. I would add, I, I think uh, part of your question, um, I, I may be misinterpreting this, was about um, also how technology plays into these cases and how well-suited courts are to deal with these kinds of uh heavily focused technology uh, questions and arguments. And I think that is um, a a big concern here, or should be, because uh, in my own experience over a lot of years uh, before being at the Knight Institute, uh, litigating technology, internet cases, you know, courts do have a hard time applying legal principles to uh, technology and advanced technology and constantly evolving technology. And I think there is some danger here that when courts and legislatures try to apply uh, the First Amendment in this context, that they may uh, get it wrong or they may 
make a ruling that just very quickly becomes obsolete because of the fast moving pace of technology. And so there are significant challenges here for courts and for legislatures to really understand the technology and then make their decisions, craft laws based on that sophisticated understanding. I totally agree with that. And it's also worth pointing out that this is a problem that pervades all of law and not just, you know, First Amendment litigation. Courts are by their nature generalist institutions. We ask them to sit in judgment of controversies about all sorts of things that require deep expertise that they are not experts in. Um, and we hope that the system works well enough that judges have an opportunity to learn different disciplines, different technologies, you know, different areas of expertise over the course of the litigation. And if one level of the system doesn't get it right, then maybe it'll be presented a little bit more clearly at the next level in the Court of Appeals. And if the Court of Appeals messes it up, then you know, we have to hope that the Supreme Court gets it right uh, the first time, or if not, you know, 30 years later when it reconsiders. You know, does that system work perfectly? No, I don't think so. But you know, it's a system that we have for better and for worse. Okay, good cop here. Let's talk a bit about what the Supreme Court might do here, whether now or in 30 years. And we're kind of in this weird moment for the First Amendment, I think, where we're seeing some strange political realignments around it. You know, there's this liberal view at the moment that, you know, these companies are private companies and they should be able to do whatever they like. Um, That's sort of the view being presented in a lot of the uh, briefs from the amici. And that strikes me as somewhat short-sighted for all the reasons that we've talked about, about not wanting to disable uh, regulation of these companies in general. But on the other hand, we have these realignments from conservatives and somewhat famously in a concurrence to the Supreme Court case that bears the Knight Institute's name that we were talking about earlier, Biden v. Knight, uh, about whether public figures can block people on social media. This is where Justice Thomas floated the idea that platforms could be seen as common carriers or places of accommodation. And it's, you know, somewhat uh, surprising to see this coming from conservatives, uh, this conservative viewpoint uh, that, you know, we should be burdening corporations' speech rights in this way. Do either of you have any kind of idea about what might happen at the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court does take this up either now or in some of the other litigation that's uh, bubbling up through the courts, for example, in the Florida litigation, the, you know, about a similar law that you have also written an amicus brief in? How much appetite do you think there might be from other members of the court for for Justice Thomas's position? Do you have any idea or is this just this kind of moment of like, who the hell knows where we might be once this gets to the Supreme Court? I think it is difficult to know. I mean, I would note that, you know, among the conservative justices, uh, Justice Kavanaugh has taken a, well, when he was a DC circuit judge, he took a very different view from the one that Justice Thomas expressed. Uh, So it's not clear to me, you know, where that part of the court, what the leanings of that part of the court would be beyond Justice Thomas. Uh, So I really do think it's it's not at all clear how the court will apply precedents like uh, Tornillo, uh, which which is more than 30 years old, to this, you know, very new context. I, 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 you know, I think or I would hope that the court uh, will understand that an absolutist First Amendment position in favor of the platforms uh, is misguided and short-sighted here, and that the kind of middle ground that the Knight Institute has taken here uh, is the appropriate one because uh, it makes room for government regulation while also uh, respecting 
uh, the First Amendment rights of these social media platforms. I think that's right. And it's, you know, it is genuinely hard to predict. You know, if the Supreme Court ends up siding with Texas or Florida, you know, that would be quite a turnabout from decisions like uh, Halleck and Denver area uh, and others where courts and especially the court's more conservative justices were especially concerned with uh, keeping the government out of private editorial decisions made by companies. Now, maybe they just genuinely think the social media platforms are different. And if so, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they differentiate the platforms from, you know, other private corporations whose private editorial decisions we all understand to be insulated from government meddling. But I, I still would be quite shocked if a majority of the court goes down that road. I think if I were to make a prediction, I, you know, I'd guess that at most one or two would peel off from a decision in favor of, you know, of the platforms. But I'm not a betting man and uh, I'm not going to make an exception here. It, I would just add that, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, given that, given the shocking uh, direction that the Fifth Circuit has gone in, which I would never uh, have anticipated here, I also uh, am not a betting man on what the Supreme Court would do. Although I certainly hope that uh, they, I know that they will be uh, at least seemingly much better informed than uh, it, it looked like the Fifth Circuit uh, was at the oral argument. So what are you keeping your eye on from, from here? What should we be uh, watching as, as this case progresses? And what do you think comes next? So, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, currently uh, before the 11th Circuit and before the 5th Circuit are challenges to similar state laws regulating social media platforms. And I, I'm, I'm confident that this uh, issue from, you know, either uh, from one of those cases will reach the Supreme Court and uh, I, I think it will be very important to, you know, keep a, a, a close eye uh, on the briefing there. You know, what shape it takes. It may very well have nuances that we didn't that we didn't see in the Fifth Circuit and that we didn't see in the Eleventh Circuit. Uh, and you know, obviously, a, a case like one of those that makes it to the court, you know, will be of momentous importance. And I think that's where you know, amicus briefs are also uh, very important. And I, yeah, I think our approach. Uh, which doesn't just accept uh, the social media platforms' arguments, is very important because it's generally the case that amicus briefs just basically accept the party's arguments, the party they're supporting. They may they may emphasize a certain aspect, uh, like some of the briefs and uh, amicus briefs so far in the uh, Texas case have focused on common carrier law and what that means, but in general. They uh, completely accept the arguments made by the side that they're supporting. And I think the court will see a lot of value in a brief uh, like the one that I think we would file that uh, does not take that you know, full acceptance of what the social media platforms are saying and that has a more nuanced approach that tries to take account of all of the First Amendment interests and values that are at stake here. The only thing I'd add is, you know, we're keeping our eyes on the possibility of federal legislation. And maybe that's just naively optimistic to think that Congress might pass, you know, some transparency laws. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're keeping our eyes on those efforts and studying those proposals closely, uh, you know, because if any of those get enacted, then 
I think we'll almost certainly see a challenge filed by NetChoice or by one of the other trade associations or the platforms, and we'll uh, be going through the same exercise, hopefully, though, uh, with a much more thoughtfully and carefully developed legislative justification for uh, the transparency regulations and uh, with more nuanced briefing by, you know, the Department of Justice defending those laws. Um, But, you know, time will tell. I'm not sure either of you have an answer to this, but I am curious because there's been a lot of discussion about this in the last few days, which is what the platforms might do if the law remains in force. And I guess there are a number of different tacks that they could take, which is, you know, there's been some discussion about whether they might pull out entirely. They could, you know, provide some sort of completely moderation-free platform and say, you know, oh, is this what you were asking for? Or they could, you know, genuinely try to comply, whatever that means, and, you know, try and work it out through litigation, as we were talking about about before. Now, it's worth noting that the law is technically in effect and the sky hasn't fallen and it's not clear to me. I don't know if you know differently that the platforms have changed their uh, behavior in Texas or otherwise. We've seen, for example, that they've been uh, scrubbing the Buffalo shooting video while there's some ambiguity about uh, whether the Texas law would require them to, to carry it. So I'm curious you know, whether you have any thoughts about what they might do, but also whether you think there's any strategic, uh, what might be legally strategic for them to do, or whether it's just totally irrelevant to their case and, you know, how this might play out in that sense. I can imagine that they would, you know, think it attractive to do what you're suggesting to kind of show Texas what it is they've actually uh, legislated into existence, which is a you know, almost content moderation, not entirely content moderation free, but, you know, content moderation light social media platform and see whether that's what uh, people actually want. I think the, you know, the main reason they they might not do that is it might actually be just technically really burdensome for them to stand up, you know, two very different systems of content moderation, you know, inside of the United States, you know, one for 49 states and, and territories and one for just Texas and you know, the easier thing for them to do would just be to exit, exit the state. And then I think the question would be, how much is that going to impact their bottom line? Uh, You know, are they going to take a huge hit in advertising revenue if, you know, they're no longer offering their, their services to people in in the great state, which I should note I'm from. I I think here they will, uh, I think it's very likely uh, given, I, I think the burdens they have explained of trying to take steps to comply with the Texas law. They will do absolutely nothing between now and when uh, the ultimate decision is made by the Supreme Court. Uh, They will very likely face litigation uh, probably very soon from uh, the Texas attorney general uh, that they, uh, you know, that they are in violation of the law and they will be litigating those things, you know, while the appeals here are going on, but I would be surprised if they take any action until that is all uh, made clear. And I think then they will have these uh, larger strategic questions, which they may try to answer, you know, in the meantime, that Alex has raised that are, you know, very important questions and considerations uh, for them, you know, that also raises, you know, um, I think, as Alex said, just questions of technical feasibility. What can they do if they want to wall off Texas in some way? Uh, you know, can they do that? I think those are all questions that, you know, we don't know the answers to. And I'm sure there are questions that their technologists uh, will be uh, addressing, you know, internally 
uh, as things move on here. Well, Alex, we, we should have put your uh, your Texas roots up front. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I didn't mean to hide them. I you know I, I grew up in Texas, and my family still lives there. All right. On that note, uh, Scott, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. That's been really uh, so interesting. Thanks so much for uh, for having us. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare materials supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. On Friday, May 20th, our editor-in-chief, Benjamin Wittes, will speak with Bryce Clem and Max Johnston, the creators of Lawfare's newest podcast, Allies. This podcast is edited by Jen Howell, and our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. 